The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. So once you've got the B Corp tick, how do you make sure you keep it? But more importantly, how do you make it real? Kiwi Bank is now officially a B Corp. Of course, it's state-owned and now even more closely connected to the government because it doesn't have a layer of ownership between itself and the government. But still, it needs to make sure that it's the purpose-led organisation that got it the B Corp tech to start with. This week on When the Facts Change, we have a chat with Steve Yurkovich, who's the CEO of Kiwi Bank, and who had to go through the process of reporting back on Kiwi Bank's B Corp status. What is it doing with its climate emissions? How is its pay equity situation? What's it actually going to do to help Māori get into housing? We talk about that this week with Steve Yurkovich, who surprises me at least with the candour he talks about around pay equity. He said he came up with quite a few confronting discussions about why Kiwi Bank has a relatively large pay gap at the moment, over 30%. And he talks about the issues around moving to low emissions. Do these executives really need to fly all over the country? Maybe not, it turns out. And what exactly is the banking industry doing to make sure that Māori can get into their own houses, particularly when there is such dispersed ownership of land? Steve Yukovich talks about all of these things this week on When the Facts Change. Kia ora to Steve Yurkovich, who is the CEO of QBank. Welcome in to the spin-off studios, Steve. Kia ora. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Keen to talk about the sustainability report which you've put out as a B Corp, which is unusual for a big company in New Zealand and particularly a bank. I wanted to find out why you did it for a start. Yeah, I mean, the genesis of it was once we started pursuing um, how we would measure our impact around our purpose – so Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Um, I've been in, you know, had the privilege of being in the role for four years, and as we started to, you know, think about measurable, deliverable targets for, you know, living up to our purpose, because what I found was across the organisation there's a really strong buy-in to that purpose, and it's the sort of thing that everyone can get behind, but it's the sort of thing that can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. And so uh, one of my really valued colleagues, Shelley, uh, began championing some work on behalf of the executive around what were the purpose pillars and the purpose goals look like. And as we started to explore those things and the contribution we could make, uh, working with Julia Jackson, who leads our sustainability efforts, it became pretty apparent that, uh, you know, like we've done with um, pay, like we've done with gender, like we've done with rainbow, some form of external accreditation or benchmark made a lot of sense. And then once you start exploring that, then B Corp is kind of the gold standard. Um, And, you know, like many organisations, we sort of had to stare at the B Corp um, tests and accreditation, and it's pretty daunting. Uh, and it's not one of those things that you sort of want to go in half-hearted. 
Uh, but actually our chairman, John uh, Hartley, is a real champion for B Corp. And so it sort of shows, you know, if you can get your stakeholders lined up and they're passionate about it and you get organisational momentum behind it, then B Corp becomes this sort of path that you go on. And there was part of us, I think, when we kicked it off, which is, well, a lot, look, a lot of these accreditations, there'll be heaps to learn out of it. Um, but we may not pass muster and we may have more work to do. Actually, uh, the, you know, the organisation was well-placed and we managed to gain B Corp accreditation. What I would say with cards on the table was I did underestimate the impact it would have for our people and for our customers. Uh, I thought it was going to be a really great external validation. I'd obviously done a bit of reading, you know, the poster child's at Patagonia and all those sort of companies. But the moment it really struck me, and this sounds a bit cold-hearted, but the moment it really struck me was we were putting out a bond issue and a couple of the names on the bond issue had not been there previously and I asked the treasurer, you know, where they come from and and the answer he gave me was, well, actually the B Corp accreditation perked their interest and we met their green list and therefore they bid. And as you know, if you know how these things work, the more the bid is, the tighter the pricing is. And so actually it was the real first time, I think, honestly, that the penny really dropped, which is not only can this be good for Aotearoa, not only can it be good for our team, but there is really a financial benefit um, because it drove down the pricing of the bond by, say, two or three basis points. We were putting $350 million out the door, so every point really counts. Um, and that really, you know, I've been reading a lot about ESG and its contribution and, you know, the big fund managers and those sorts of things, but I guess it was that sort of first real moment money in the tin that I looked at it and thought, actually, this is way more impactful than I thought. And the B Corp thing's really interesting. I've been involved in a whole lot of sponsorships and, you know, in previous organisations, and none of them have ever had the cut through that customers are coming to you saying, you know what, I'll join you because you are a B Corp, because you think the same way. So actually, in terms of attracting customers and attracting team, you know, a lot more of our team are really interested in about, well, show me, don't tell me, what are we actually doing? Um, and so B Corp validates a whole lot of those sorts of things, but also holds you to account around improvements. So... Sorry, a long answer to a, a good question, but you know, B Corp has definitely surprised on the upside, and there's a real sense of community around those that are interested in B Corp and those that are pursuing B Corp and those that have it. Just wondering, though, what are the specifics you, you found when you decided to look under the hood? Yeah, I mean, um, there was some pretty macro stuff, you know, like quite high level, which is, you know, constitutionally and from a shareholder level, you know, what would be required for us to be a B Corp? They would ask questions like, so what happens if, you know, in the future we have it taken off us? All those sorts of things because it's, you know, there is, those things need thinking through at the start. And so um, a lot of it was around, you know, policy, procedures, mindsets that were in play. Uh, some that also gave us question about actually, you know, are we doing enough? Could we do more? Should we do more? So it is really broad reaching. There's sort of not many parts of the organisation that escape you know, at least a decent amount of thought around is this consistent with what, you know, we value and, and what we want to be. And so it is really far-reaching. Um, but actually the other thing I'd say is no one's really come to us and say, oh, you guys are trying to be woke and why would you do that and it's greenwashing and all that sort of stuff, actually. It's been really constructive. I mean... Perhaps lucky you're not in the state of Texas. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. Um Particularly on climate emissions, um, that's an interesting one for a bank. You don't often think of a bank as a as a big emitter of of carbon. But um, what have you found, and you know what are you trying to reduce? Uh, what's been again? What's been really fascinating? I mean, probably it's always the um, the leadership and culture elements that probably perk my interest the most. And so, 
what I've really seen from the emissions targets and the sustainability reporting over the last couple of years is um, a real change in mindset from leaders around, you know, there's a target and, oh, yeah, it's a bit of a goal, but don't worry about it. And, you know, it'd be great if we can make it, but, you know, not too bad if we don't. Uh, and, and various organisations have been involved, which is there's lots of things we measure and there's lots of, you know, opportunities for us to pursue things. But particularly in the last 18 months, I mean, I've, I've sat in quite a number of calls where people have said, you know what, I, I can't travel just for that. I won't go down just for that meeting. Um, we don't have the budget for that. You know, if we're going to get together, let's really make it worthwhile. If we're going to use, you know, our missions budget to get to Wellington or to get to Christchurch or wherever, I really want to make a day of it. And, you know, we're a bigger organisation and, you know, we're not the biggest bank going around, but we have a lot of resources compared to most New Zealand businesses. And so when I think about the roles I've been in, which have been usually customer-facing ones, jumping on a plane and going and seeing a customer in the Hawke's Bay or in, in, you know, wherever it was, was never a big deal. As long as, you know, you had a budget, but it was actually a financial budget, not so much an emissions budget. And now I see a real leadership change around... Well, you know, I've only got a certain amount of times I can travel. There's only a certain amount of times I can get the team together to be consistent about this budget. Um, what are we going to do? And so, it, you know, what you hope for with targets, I guess, is that you see a change in behaviour. And that's really what we have seen. We have seen leaders unprompted. Um, but I sit in a lot of conversations with people who are actually, I'm not sure that's what I put my money into or my effort into. I want to get the most out of it. So real behavioural change driven by those targets. Also, you know... Um, real curiosity around how the targets are set and, you know, with COVID we weren't travelling as much, so is that a really fair reflection? All really, you know, useful, uh, constructive questions, but actually also a bit of backbone from the team saying, who cares? You know, the point is we need to reduce. So, you know, we can pick the highest ever year in the history of Kiwi Bank and use that as our target, but actually that's not going to do any good. That's not going to make Kiwi better off. So, you know, the, the year is the year, and obviously we all travelled a lot less when we had COVID, but that's the emission, so that's what the bu- the budget got set off. So from a, you know, practical point of view, let's say I'm uh, working inside the bank, am I given a budget every year on uh, how many um, tonnes I'm allowed to emit? Yep, absolutely. And so uh, there's nine people on the executive team. Each of those senior leaders, including myself, has got a budget. And that's the budget that we have to operate in, and that's the one that um, if we can achieve that, then we'll achieve our emissions reduction. Uh, so that's you know a really uh, quite a classic example with air travel. Uh, some of the stuff around the electric vehicles, where we've made you know ear- an early start with a lot more to go, has actually you know I guess the reality has caught up with us in the sense that you know EVs aren't that easy to get hold of. There was quite a bit of a backlog. Um, we we determined that we would move business unit by business unit so people could understand EVs and go through it together. Um, so, you know, we've got 7% of the fleet uh, in EV, which is quite small compared to some other organisations. But also, I guess the thing I'd say about sustainability reporting, the B Corp, actually it's about, you know, making progress and not waiting for perfect. Uh, you know, 7% small compared to some, but it's better than where we were. We want to be at 50% in the next couple of years and then 100%, you know, the year after that. So, you know, there's sort of staggered rollouts, but actually, same as the sustainability reporting, you know, external reporting board will have its own views on how things should be, you know, reported and stuff, but actually we didn't want to wait. So let's get out there, and if it's not perfect, it's not the end of the world. I see from the report you, you've reduced carbon emissions 22% in the 2021-22 year. 
Uh, where did that come from mostly? Where, where, and where are the lowest hanging fruit, do you think? Oh, I think it is. Uh, air travel is really visible uh, and there's good metrics around it. The point also I think that's being made well is, you know, the partnership with Kogo is a way to which try and get small, medium businesses access to information around allowing them to take some action. Could you explain for our listeners what Kogo is? Yeah, sure. So Kogo is a startup, uh, in a sense, a sort of fintech business. What they do is create uh, the ability to ingest uh, information from zero, and through the codes and the industry codes, they're able to make a uh, an approximation of what the emissions are, and, you know, uh, emissions times spend equals your footprint, and it means that you know as long as you've got zero, uh, and I'm sure it'll be open to others in the future. Uh, every one of us can you know have on an app, you know what our footprint is and what choices we could make and what sort of action we can take. And I think if I think back to that, you know what I was talking about earlier, which is you know targets, visibility, ease of looking at these and understanding them, which is what sort of Kogo does, which sort of in a sense, democratises getting that information from your own sources and understanding, you know, algorithmically, so not super, super accurate yet, but that'll build over time, where I can take action. And that means that anyone that's got a zero account and anyone's got a smartphone can download that app and and get after it. And so, you know, we're seeing big organisations overseas, Commonwealth Bank, some of the British banks sign up uh, because there is demand from customers. But I think like every small business owner, they're like, yeah, I'd love to do something about it, but... You know, I don't have a sustainability manager. I don't have a whole lot of spare time to go and do this. And so if you can make it easy and, and put it on someone's um, phone, then I believe that people will take action. So does that mean you're working with your small business customers and saying, hey, this is something that, that you could do? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, that's an offering to them. You know, we're not big enough to do all these things by ourselves. So we're very committed to partnering with people. Uh, so we allow, in that sort of sense, you know, you get the information, you can take the action, but also... Under our um, Kiwi Bank sustainability loans, we're offering a discount for people that are making a step in the right direction towards being more sustainable. So, you know, classic example I always use is, you know, Steve and Bernard are running a plumbing business. We've got 12 vans on the road. We want to turn them into EVs. Uh, We'll offer a discount asset finance for you to electrify your vehicles. Uh, And one of the things I've observed, I guess, over 20 plus years in banking is, you know, the top end of town, the big institutions, the big corporates, they have the resources and the banks have got very skilled and dedicated people to offer green bonds and all those sorts of things. But that's a handful of 100 companies in New Zealand that can afford to do that. You know, you, we need to be able to offer something to the hundreds of thousands of businesses that want to make some change. And if it is the switch to, you know, tradies going to EVs or a ferry that goes electric and, and proves that it can be done, um, you know, Ubico in terms of the you know farm bikes that are electric, all those are meaningful things that step in the right direction. And you know, agriculture's done a bit of it. You know, we don't participate inside the farm gate, but you can look around and see, you know, a group of people in New Zealand and a big community that's had to take meaningful action. You know, there's always an argument they could do more or faster, but actually, hundreds of millions of dollars have been invested on that pathway. And some of the banks have you know been able to offer discounts to support that. So that's kind of taking what's been at the big end of town right across a much smaller range of businesses and, and saying, hey, if, if you want the option, we're here to help. What sort of uh, take-up have you seen? What sort of uh, investments and, and things have your customers done? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> really early doors at the moment. And so, you know, we've got 10 accredited uh, Kiwi Bank business bankers that are out there sort of, you know, coach the coaches in a sense. And um, they're out there talking in their own uh, business hubs and business units about how we can go to market with these been really good initial interest from customers and then it's really about timing and so 
just making sure we're consistently having those conversations with customers saying, hey, you know, when you're ready, when you want to think about it, actually maybe we can help. You know, doing that at annual review, doing that when we go out and see customers, going on when we're renewing facilities, um, then you sort of got the magic spot, which is, okay, I was thinking about it, you're going to help and support me, it's going to make it a little bit more affordable, why don't I do it, what am I waiting for? And then so if we can get that sort of marriage of, you know, you think about Kiwi Bank being a B Corp and having this purpose, it's being pretty open and visible about its sustainable uh, goals, it's offering some support, it's, you know, partnering to give me some insight, hopefully all those things sort of overlap and you hit the magic moment where someone takes action. Um, but, you know, it's going to take time, but uh, I think I'm really positive about it. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment, and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side, with our surging migration, boosting labour supply and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows, and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Now, one other area that the report looks at is the gender pay gap, which shows that um, currently it's at about 33.6%. So what's the, what's the story there? What did you find when you started digging and, and how, do you, how do you report that? How do you understand it? Um, well, I've, I've taken a lot of personal learning out of it, actually, because um, there's been some pretty confronting moments. And so... Uh, if I sort of list them in, in, a, in an order of shame, if you like, for me personally, is, you know, I'm a dad of two daughters. And so I've always been highly convinced that uh, there is no way my daughter should get paid less for doing the same job because they're a, a woman. Uh, I've had fantastic female leaders and female bosses um, through my career. And and two of the, you know, by far the most impactful leaders I've had in my career and, and Lindley Wood and Barbara Chapman uh, uh, have been fantastic role models. And so, you know, you can see... 
you know, the huge impact that uh, woman leadership has because it does have, you know, in the main a different style and a different approach sometimes. And so you can and see... In, and in banking in New Zealand, we've yeah, had quite a history, particularly look, in the last decade. To- so. Totally. I mean, it's amazing. And that's one of, you know, that's one of the things I'd look back now as the, as the former chair of the New Zealand Bankers Association. Unfortunately, COVID sort of, you know, knocked us off uh, like it did for everyone. But... You know, I was I was really really keen that we were able to emphasise for everyone thinking about a career. You know, we had uh, BNZ led um, by Angie. We've got Vittoria leading ASB. You've got Antonia leading ANZ. Got Donna leading TSB. Um, you know, and if you look at the top fifty of the NZX, you know th- these companies are very very big New Zealand companies. I mean, the most profitable company in New Zealand, I'd, I'd have to say, is ANZ. Um, you know, incredibly well led by Antonia. And so for me, the role models that we had in finance were. If you want to lead the biggest organisations with the biggest balance sheets that make the most money, that you know impact fifteen thousand people for some of them, um, here you go. And so, un- unfortunately, because of COVID, we- I never really managed to get us across the line on that. But there's excellent role models. Um, and so, we- once we went back, and it'd been a- probably eighteen months um, between. Oh, I must have been yeah about eighteen months with Mind the Gap uh, reviews. Uh, actually, we hadn't made progress. And that was particularly confronting and something that I talked about when I came into the role around, you know, one of the goals to improve our performance there. And I'd I'd led the initiative in my previous role, partly because traditionally and wherever I've worked, business banking is very low on women in leadership. Uh, And it talks to some of the issues that you have around evening the playing field, which is technology and business banking, which in banks typically pays more is light on women in leadership. And so like why for... Is, why is that, do you think? Yeah, I, I, it's really fascinating. I mean, STEM, probably STEM the problems in tech start at school. Um, so they have excellent diversity in terms of where people come from. But in terms of gender diversity, it's very, very low. And, you know, the best paying, most in demand, most transferable skills are in digital and tech. And so for anyone thinking about the future uh you know, male or female, those tech jobs are, are fantastic opportunities. But, you know, I think it is pretty structural and long term. So we need to, you know, make changes, but we need to stick at it because the the, the change has been pretty glacial. Business banking, um, you know, I, I think there's probably been an unconscious bias that people get appointed because they like the people who are their boss. Uh, and so, you know, I've had certainly some pretty confronting conversations, which is, hey, you know, if I can't talk about whether the Blues lost or won in the weekend, am I going to get the job? Um, you know, how about the Hurricanes team? What are we thinking about that? And so, you know, that sort of stuff which, you know, doesn't help you belong, um, maybe that's played a big part in it. Uh, we probably haven't had the dedicated targets that we need. Uh, you know, we can't lose any possible intervention where we can, you know, make a call. I think... My experience sometimes is that, um, you know, if you ask a guy, and someone jokingly said this to me once, but I actually think it's a real truism, you know, if there's a list of 10 attributes on the job, you know, a guy will tell you you can do 12 of them. And, uh, you know, you'll interview a female candidate and she can do nine of them and tells you that she can do six and she's working on the rest. And so I think there's a sense of confidence and embracing that opportunity that, um, you know, the issue is not with the applicant, the issue is with the selector. And I think, you know, we've for too long talked about what we can do to help the candidate and actually the interventions needed at the selector level uh, for the choices. And so and so, if I come to the last confronting pit was, then I tried to explain to our organisation um, why we hadn't made the progress we had. 
and I got a lot of you know very real and and sometimes quite emotional feedback about how I'd mansplained our way out of it, and I had mansplained our way out of it, and you know I'm embarrassed about what a poor job I did on it, uh, but I also left that conversation going I'm not going to have another crack at doing that again. I'll get to the bottom of it, uh, and so yeah, there's a lot to do. Um, and any, there's a huge opportunity. Any examples of things that have worked or you think could work? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things is really getting clear in your own mind that actually when you're putting these candidate lists together, you just don't show any sort of um, acceptability or comfort with, oh, I've, I've had a look around and I can't find any good female candidates. And so if you believe, which I do, which is that cannot possibly be the case, there must be good candidates out there. And when when my boss says to Steve, um, well, actually, Steve, actually, I'm not sure it's a candidate problem, it might be your problem, that you're not well enough connected, you're not networking, you're not you know, being showing up in the right places to create the opportunity for, for selection, then you're actually, oh, hold on, I better do something about this. And, you know, is this, you know, someone saying to me, is this a leadership gap for you, you know? Why can't you understand these things? Actually does create a different sense of ownership. I also think, you know, I'm a big believer around the fact that actually I know when I came into my job as the chief executive, I wasn't ready. Um, and and I mean that in the sense that actually every good job you take on always feels like a stretch and always feels like you've got a hell of a lot to learn. And I definitely think I'm better at my job four years on. And is there heaps more I could be better at? Yep, of course there is. But actually someone took a chance and was prepared to back me as a first-time chief executive, and hopefully I've paid that back that confidence and continue to do so. But also when you're looking at candidates, you know they don't have to tick every box. And in fact, you don't want them to because I'm sure it's the same in your business. Someone that ticks every box is bored pretty quickly. So you've got to have runway. And so you've got to make some choices there. And the risk is actually very low because the person's got the energy and the character and the drive, then you know that's what you need. Sometimes um, when you're appointing people, you can either do it internally or externally. And I wonder whether the um, opportunity with COVID for more people to work from home in more flexible ways has you know, created uh, a, a different mix of people who could be promoted yeah. internally. Oh, 100%. 100% agree with that. And what we've seen in our own business is people returning to the workforce the um, the geographic gap or um, disadvantage of you know wanting to be based in Nelson or you know Gisborne or where you pick it um, is has gone away to a large extent. You know we've got a lot of roles now that are absolutely one hundred percent flexible of our own location, and you know ultimately connection and being and getting together sometimes and and apprenticing and learning off people is still really really important. But actually. Some of the false dilemma around, well, you have to be in Lower Hutt or you have to be in Hastings or you have to be in downtown Auckland or Wellington has gone away. And so absolutely the universe of candidates has opened up. I also think um, it's meant job sharing and some flexibility beyond the hours you can contribute, say, for working parents coming back into the workforce is way more flexible. And so the choices you might make around, well, I can't do five days or I don't want to do five days, but I can do three has meant, particularly in some jobs, where actually we'll take two people who can do three days, you know, we get 1.2 FTE, um, and, you know, people that work those sort of hours and have a lot on are always people that get a lot of stuff done. And it's that old adage, right, give something to a busy person if you want it done. What I find about people returning to the workforce like that is they haven't got time to muck around. They don't spend a lot of time sort of, 
you know, chatting and, and wandering around and doing extra hours that they don't have because they've got other things to do. And, and so they become our most productive people. But it's definitely opened up the opportunity for sure. Particularly in this tight labour market oh, yeah. where um, you need to sometimes produce more with the same number of people. You essentially need to improve your productivity and find people who can do things in different ways. Yep, and it, and it um, dispels a lot of myths. And, you know, the proof is in the pudding, which is, you know, three, six months on, you start to, you know, you really do start to question yourself, which is actually some of the stuff I felt was important previously is far less important than actually, you know, the really core attributes that you're looking for in someone. Just on that, um, what are the things that surprised you through that process in terms of, I always thought this was important, an important skill for a, a business banker or a tech person to have, but actually what I've learned is it's something else. Yeah, I mean, um, what it does is level the playing field, um, maybe in favour of the people that are a bit more introverted. So, you know, the, the sort of Steve, you know, and I'm, in, I'm a card-carrying extrovert, so I get a lot of energy from being around people. So I'm a person who chooses to come into the workplace because I get more energy from it. I find I found the COVID period really tough working on my own and very draining. Uh, I find being in the office, you know, very, it's very seldom that it's draining. Um, but other people feel the opposite way. And so... You know, the people that look high energy when you see them and they're always full of chat and, you know, sort of creating energy in the workplace, being face-to-face helps them. Uh, And the introverted person that you think, oh, you know, he, she's a bit quiet. I wonder, you know, is that a sign of that they lack for motivation? Well, actually, no, it's just a a preference for being a bit introverted. And actually, when you you start measuring outputs and impact rather than FaceTime and, you know, the other sort of social networking stuff that happens – actually you start to get a bit more clear-eyed about who's producing what, and you also recognise that people can produce things in a lot of different ways. What's been really fascinating has been um, there's much more openness around, even at a really senior level, I've got a couple of team members who are super clear on the executive team around what their hours of power are. And so if we've got big meetings to have or things where you need to tackle that are really gritty, you know, a couple of my colleagues will say, you're going to get me at the worst time of the day if we have the meeting then. And it's actually caused us to shift the meeting from, say, you know, a couple of people are way better at five till seven o'clock at night. Now, they choose to do some stuff after five, which is their choice and, and what they like. But an eight o'clock meeting will be them be at their worst, whereas there's three or four of us that that's, you know, that sort of 7.30 till 10.30 is absolutely our most productive time. So you actually start to understand what makes people tick. I think also COVID... Um, and working from home, you know, we always talked about, you know, you don't have to apologise for work coming into your house. You know, work came to you, not the other way around. And so, you know, you did learn more about people. You did see a bit behind the curtain of what people bring to work and when they were struggling and those sorts of things. And so I think it's created a bit more openness perversely, um, but certainly a lot more understanding that preferences aren't definitive. You know, that they don't de- determine whether you're a a great performer because you're an extrovert and an introvert, um, there's a lot more to it. Just looking at the issue of Māori housing, which is a um, big problem for society overall, much lower home ownership rates, much poorer housing quality, and the banking system is a key player in this issue of how do we solve our housing crisis. What, what is Ki- Kiwi Bank doing to um, help uh, more houses be built, uh, particularly on iwi-owned land? Yeah, so I mean, the Kiwi Bank team have been really focused uh, on Kainga Whenua Loan Scheme, which is a a product that helps support uh, Kiwi Bank and lending to individuals or Ahu Whenua Trusts as borrowers to build residential property. 
uh, on Māori land with multiple owners. And so uh, for those listeners that aren't that familiar with it, it's, it's certainly very common that Māori land may or may not be um, freehold and certainly can have really distributed ownership, as you, you're touching on. And so um, what banking is not very good at is trying to work out how to do things that don't fit the box. And so I'm quite critical of our industry. I think what we've done with that loan is, is good, which is, you know, that the nature of that distributed ownership or maybe the fact that it's leasehold or Māori leasehold means that the traditional security of a mortgage and all of the machinery that's behind, you know, these billion-dollar industries that are in banking, it doesn't work very well. And so you sort of need to be a bit flexible about how you take security, you know, what you require in terms of deposits because uh, trying to, you know, Offering a product up and then saying to someone you need to come up with 150 grand or 200 grand's worth of deposit, you might as well not even offer it. And so you need to be different about that. So there's definitely some flexibility around what we're offering there. Um, but actually, I think the really big issue that we need to face into is you know banks are supposed to be in the risk business, and you know we are every day making decisions around risk. And you know ultimately, bank uh, businesses are pretty simple. We have depositors and we have borrowers. We intermediate between the two and hopefully we get everyone's money back at some stage. Um, and if we don't, we put aside some money to cover those losses. But actually taking risks that are outside the conventional ones, we're really slow. So the, the banking industry has a very simple model, which is taking a security over a title and lending money to the owner of that title and making sure they pay you back every yep. month with their salaries. When you've got a split title and often split dozens of ways, how does a bank solve that issue? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question and, and it's a convenient one if you want to maintain the status quo. But actually, we the banking industry has hundreds of thousands of customers that gave us no security and we give them money. You know, one of the perverse things that happens, of course, is when you're a student, you roll up to the bank and they give you 10 grand as a student loan and you, you know, never see you again in terms of what you do with it. Whereas, you know, if you're a small business and you want 10 grand as a startup, we say to you, oh, can you give us two years' worth of accounts? And the, the startup goes, well, I'm a startup. That's what it means. I can't. And so we do a whole lot of hoop jumping. Whereas if we take a portfolio approach like credit cards as well, you know, millions and millions and millions of customers um, are out there with a credit card, borrow and repay, borrow and repay, and all we have is, you know, a signed agreement. And so actually there is billions of dollars lent that way, just not in that product set. Um, I also think, you know, there's – there's a lot that the Reserve Bank and others can do, uh, and you've seen you know, considerable intervention um, across all sorts of spectrums to rightly address uh, the you know, disproportionately poor outcome that Māori and others get, you know, whether it be health systems, banking, you know, financial literacy, all sorts of issues. Um, so the current system doesn't work very well. I think everyone can acknowledge that. It becomes a very heated argument and even really rational people seem to go quite irrational quite quickly around some of the conversation around co-governance and things like that. So I'm, I'm sort of not getting into that part. What I am talking about is actually, if you're the Reserve Bank and you change the way the risk weightings work for freehold land, for Māori freehold, then banks will lend. Because night follows day, the return on the lending is driven by the security that you hold and the capital you hold, right? And so if the if the weighting of the leasehold land could be you know, even the playing field, then banks would lend on it. But actually, you know, the sort of comparable return you need for that type of security is so disproportionately out of whack that no one lends to it. But actually, you can just change that. The, the way you can change it inside an organisation is take the same mindset that you do around, you know, your unsecured or personal loans and say, 
well, what if we just, you know, we're, uh, Kiwi Bank's pretty small, right? Sub $30 billion in assets compared to the really big ones. But if we put $100 million aside and say we're going to lend that into Māori, SME or freehold land, we're not going to lose our shirt, you know. And, and what you're really backing is the character of the borrower. And so if you think about it the way that I've sort of explained it to my team, um, the way I see it is, you know, yes, in a mortgage you've got a, a, you know, security over the land and yes, you can take it to mortgagee sale. But if you look in the last two, three years, even through COVID, there's been a handful of mortgagee sales. There were six well, there you go. In, you, in the three months to the end of January. Well, I was going to say. Two I mean, per I, month I, in the entire country. That's right. So you know the numbers, right? So, you know, millions and millions and millions of homeowners and six in the last quarter. So that's actually not what happens. What happens is the bank rings you up and says, you know, something might, unfortunate might have happened. You might have lost your job or someone gets sick, heaven forbid, or whatever happens. I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. Okay, well, what are you going to do? What's your plan? Oh, I need a bit of a holiday. I need to go interest only. Can I restructure my loan? Yep, yep, yep. Let's talk about all those things. So we've had lots of practice of that through COVID. Actually, you know what? I don't think I can afford it anymore. I'm going to sell it. Okay, let's have an orderly sale. We get our money back and off we go. So all of those options still exist, right? So, we, you know, the first way out, it's called, is, is it, you know, not the first way out because there's lots of other things you can do. But also if I think about when we've lent to groups like um, franchise owners or you know, Brethren Church or any of these things, it is actually around the community buy-in to supporting their reputation. And actually, that's what you really count on in these situations, which is actually we're not going to let one of our community fail. And if I think about the strength of community ownership, that may be the thing that needs tapping, which is actually collectively we will support that borrower, knowing that actually, hey, you know, the land's not as productive as it could be yet, but it'll come or, you know, the building's taking a bit longer than it did, but actually, don't worry, we've got this, some sort of underwrite from the Crown to support people through that transition of the tricky stage of, you know, getting a building out of the ground before it's leased and, and operated by tenants. All of those things can be bridged, and so there's heaps of um, solutions. The ultimate one is around choice and appetite, I think. Anything in particular the Reserve Bank could do around um, capital uh, requirements, risk weightings to yeah. help them? Yeah, I mean, at the moment they're in consultation. Um, the The challenge we've got is um, I think we just, you know, we need to move on that. We actually make, need to make those choices because those are the signals that will send logical owners and banks into the right behaviour. So at the moment there's a, a, a regulatory headwind that doesn't need to exist and, you, and I mean, if you think about the way the industry works, there's plenty of areas where we have limits, you know, speed limits on LVRs or whatever. You know, you can limit the amount that goes out there. It's not all or nothing. You know, you're not going to wake up one day and a bank's gone bust because it's, you know, lent $5 billion to, to something and they can't get their money back because that's not how it works. Um, and so actually sensible behaviour from sensible lenders and banks don't go very well when they don't get their money back means that actually, you know, they'll follow the opportunity, but... Just let's not stand in our own way. Something for me to follow up on with the Reserve Bank. Steve Yurkovich, the CEO of QBank, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te ai he here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.